0: Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear, bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Hallie History. We discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D here again today. Shocker, right? Um, taking you through some more of our shorts. Today is going to be Imperialism. One of my favorites. Uh, truly, you know, really interesting topic. A lot of debate. Still get to talk about Theodore Roosevelt, which I love. <laughs> interesting time period, too, in American history. Not super well known, but... Fascinating, nonetheless. Uh, I got to give a shout out today to Evan Press. I hear he needs a get up Tuesday. So, Evan, what I want to tell you is, listen. Remember Derek Radman, four hundred meter race last. You know, a little bit there, turn three, blows out his hamstring. What did he do? Got him finish the race. So, Evan, get yourself up for a get up Tuesday and get going. Just for some context, there, that's just something I do in my classroom, Get Up Tuesdays, because it's kind of a flat day during the week. We all need a little Get Up Tuesday. If you do need it, definitely turn on Derek Redmond's video. Um, check it out. It was one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see in athletics. Uh, finishing that race after a bone hamstring in the 92 Barcelona Olympics. Wonderful, wonderful video. Really, uh, really a tearjerker as well. So to get us going, back to history imperialism. You know, as as we've recently discussed, this time period's really tough to walk through as a teacher when you you know you're working with students because it doesn't fit into a box, and history never fits into a box. But when you're educating you know a whole classroom, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to stray off into the weeds like you'd want to. So this this time period, you know, little little confusing, but we're getting through it. So as the United States is expanding industrially, progressives are pushing back, um, trying to fix some of the ills of society. This is all going on about 1860s to about 1920. Um, some people are going to look at the United States and think that we have to expand overseas. We're really going to be focusing on the time period from about 1890 to about 1910 ish here. Okay? And. The reason I'm picking this out is because, you know, industrialization is, is a root cause still of this. It's really behind the progressives, behind a lot of this stuff. Um, and the United States fulfills its air quotation, as I'm using here, manifest destiny. That idea of the United States' destiny is to expand from its original 13 colonies from sea to shining sea, as Mr. Light in 7th grade likes to talk about that. And uh, as the Oklahoma land rush closes and the quote-unquote frontier is closed, and uh you know, unfortunately for Native peoples in the United States are, you know, placing reservations, as you're talking about in the Westward Expansion Unit, uh, short there, other, some Americans look at, like, look, we have to continue to expand, it's what the great empires of the world do, and America should take its place at the table of the great empires of the world, like France and Britain and Germany, and should look to do the same and expand overseas, um, at this time, in 1890, the United States has very few overseas territories anywhere outside of the U.S. Uh, they will more than double in the time period from 1890 to 1910. Um, so we have to look at kind of, you know, what what got us there and kind of take a quick ride through this. So imperialism is when a stronger nation exerts its political, military, or economic... Um, forces or way of life or, you know, basically exerts control politically, economically, or militarily over a weaker nation or territory. Uh, Like we talk about many of the great empires of the world, Britain, France, this is just something they did. This is just part of another day of uh, being a European empire. And that's where the center of imperialism really was at this time, um, empire building. When the center of it was Europe. Europe was at its high watermark of, uh, of its power and wealth. And Majesty, if you would have it, uh, the First World Wars we'll talk about will undo a lot of that. And Theodore Roosevelt is a guy that's going to be another great lens to look at through here. Um, you know, just like with the Progressives, he's another great guy to take a look at, and he'll be president for much of it too, and he'll be involved in a lot of the the actions as well. So, at the turn of the century, it's, it's some people think it's the United States' turn to time to take us, excuse me, place at the table. Um, The United States wasn't supposed to be an empire originally when you look at kind of our founding documents. We had thrown off uh, an empire in Great Britain, and one of our, you know, some of our ideals really were, you know, if you look back at our founding documents, were entrenched in the two ideas of self-determination and consent of the governed, Um, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Right? The idea that you know, we formed a nation where people should get to have a say in their government. Self-determination. Well, how do they want to be ruled? Who do they want to be ruled by? They have a right to self-determine what they want to be. Um, and then once they, they determine, they, ha- they give their consent to be governed. And when you become an empire, there's you know, kind of unfortunate thing here. What if you take over people that don't give their consent? Or what if you take over people that would like to determine their own fate and be independent? So a lot of Americans really argued that if the United States became an empire we would be you know become the thing we destroyed and were supposed to be against um other people like Theodore Roosevelt think that this is an outdated way of thinking that that you know um it's the turn of the century the 1900s are coming and we need to get with the rest of the world and move on and become the new empire american empire and you know grabbing territory he'll he'll say it's the manly thing to do you know he'll challenge people over it um and it, it begins slowly, and really you can see the precursors to imperialism and the roots of it. And in my opinion, I think other historians say this too that you see the roots of it in the conquering of native peoples. Um, as the United States pushes west in the original 13 colonies, you know, the proclamation line of 1763 moves westward after that. this The root of this was always there. Um, we opened trade with Japan pretty forcibly in the 1850s. Um, didn't take them as a territory, but kind of stuck our noses in there. Purchased Alaska in 1867 from Russia, adding it as a territory later. And but the, this new wave really begins for me in Hawaii, and it's the beginning of the opening shot of this whole thing. There's been a lot of sugar planters in Hawaii, um, white and other European sugar planters, American sugar planters, um, who were upset with the native rule of Queen Lila Kalani. Um Sorry if I butcher that. And they actually staged an overthrow of her in 1893, and eventually Hawaii will become a U.S. territory. Now the Hawaii, you know, the Hawaiians resisted this. Queen Liliuokalani resisted this. Clearly, they did not give their consent to be governed. Um, they had clearly self-determined how they wanted to be ruled, and you know, U.S. sugar planters kind of got in the way of that. Um, Grover Cleveland, who's the president, of this happens. He actually has a commission look at it, and he determines the overthrow was entirely illegal. But another congressional commission uh, refutes the first one. And Hawaii is annexed shortly after. So to me, I think Hawaii is kind of like the 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 loss of innocence in the United States. You know, um, there was at the, in, during the time period, the patriotic kind of attitude was that no, we're not empire builders. We we don't do that. I mean, today when you think of somebody who's patriotic in you know, America, back to back World War champs we have this image of patriotism being something that we're always involved around the world and that patriotic folks here back home believe that, you know, we, we should get more involved in things and, and, you know, that whole deal a hundred some odd years ago, turn of the century. That's not the case. Then the patriotic thing was, you know, Oh, we're better than France. We're better than Britain. We don't go abroad to to take territory. We don't do that. That's not who we are. So it's a little, you know, mind boggling for maybe the modern American mind, but it's kind of seen as the patriotic thing. So the next big push, uh, excuse me, the patriotic thing to be a, an anti-imperialist, to be against it. Um, but the next big push here comes in the complex story in the island off the coast of the United States. A long, thin island that if you control it, you dominate the Caribbean. And this is the island of Cuba who we have a very big love-hate relationship with in our history. At this time in the 1890s, Cuba is a Spanish territory, and the U.S. has always desired it because it's very strategically important. Whoever controls Cuba can use their navy to control the entire Caribbean, and being so close to the United States, it's, it's you know, pretty significant. Americans, from John Adams onwards, have always kind of dabbled with the idea of, of getting Cuba, um... And the Cubans have staged numerous revolts against Spain, but the one in the 1890s is the one that's gaining success, and Spain is having to do some pretty nasty things to keep the island uh, under control. Now, to be fair, the Cuban rebels will do just as nasty things back in a war as absolute hell, as we know, um... But many Americans would like to help the Cubans out. They have sympathy for them. A, it's close to the United States, and B, oh, look at them. They're just like us in the middle of a revolution. And that's how a lot of imperialists sell this to anti-imperialists. They sell it as, look, we're just helping the Cubans gain their independence, right? This is, you know, what if we were a powerful country, you know, like France, they they helped us during our own revolution. Maybe the Cubans need a little help. Um, But there's some pretty... pretty famous uh, Cuban rebels, Jose Marti being one, and others that will echo the sentiment of, if the United States gets into this revolution and helps us against the Spanish, who's going to get them out of the island? You know, Who's going to make them leave? So, the Cuban revolt in the 1890s is, is going well, and there's some Americans in unofficial capacity, the U.S. government's not helping the Cubans officially in any capacity at first. Um, you know, Some people would like say, hey, let's help Mount take the territory, but... You know, nevertheless, the United States at first is not into that. And the president's William McKinley at the time. And by all accounts, he's an anti-imperialist. He was a Civil War veteran who I think very genuinely did not want to see war and did not want to get involved. Um, but the nightmare scenario you're going to see here, and we're going to get this theme of what I like to call reluctant imperialism in air quotes. Um, the idea is, that if what if the Cubans win? This is what the imperialists will tell the anti-imperialists. What if the Cubans win? A stronger power like Britain or France or Germany could sweep in and take the territory because the Cubans are not ready to rule themselves and would not be able to defend themselves. The U.S. wants to avoid this at all costs. This is actually one area where the imperialists and anti-imperialists agree. They don't want anyone to have Cuba except, you know, they're okay with the Spanish having because the Spanish are weak, but God forbid any other European power who's strong has that island. Um, and that's kind of one area where you'll see some common ground among these guys. So that's where they can kind of pull the anti-imperialists in. Now there's also going to be a lot of stuff that is involved with race here. Um, the idea that you know social Darwinism was around at the time and was the prevailing thought. Uh, Many people looked at the world and said, can't you see how the civilized peoples of North America, like the United States, and the countries of Europe, like Great Britain, France, Germany, and Russia, the civilized countries are the ones that are doing so well. And can't you see how the uncivilized people who let's be honest, are usually non-white countries, non-Christian countries, non-industrialized country. Can't you see how they're not doing as well? Can't you see how it's our duty to help civilize these people and we would be doing them a good deed and a good thing? That is the prevailing thought a lot of people have at this time. One only needs to look at the Native American boarding school system, right? The idea of kill the Indian, save the man. That if we... um You know, if we have a Native American child who is born a blank, like Richard Henry Pratt would say, you know, we can educate them to be civilized and give them our way of life. Many people thought this. This is a concept today that many people would say is racist, but it was the the prevailing idea of a lot of people had back then. Now, of course, there was tons of anti-imperialists and people back then who did not believe this, but I want you to understand that this is behind a lot of this imperialism and will be used as an excuse to take territory. You know, we're doing this to help them, right? You're going to see that pop up. So back to McKinley and this whole thing with Cuba and all the tension there. Now... McKinley's got a problem. He may not want war, but there's some U.S. media outlets that are publishing some fake news, yellow journalism, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. William Randolph Hearst and Joe Pulitzer, who the Pulitzer Prize is named after, they want to sell newspapers. And the media is beginning to kind of look like it does today. You know, sensationalist stories sell. They're publishing very sensationalized news stories that stretch the truth, that tell these awful stories of what the Cubans are doing, excuse me, what the Spanish are doing to the Cubans in Cuba. Um, and it's it's selling papers and people are reading it and it's kind of you know ratcheting up the discontent in the country. The United States is getting, you know, the citizens are like we got to do something. we Got to do something to help. You know, not much different than an international crisis today. Some people would demand that we help them, right? Um, you know, the this is music to imperialist ears, but anti-imperialists even have to admit like, oh, this is getting kind of bad. Um, and so this yellow journalism, as it'll be called, kind of like to call the original fake news will really influence a lot of public opinion to want to help the Cubans. So McKinley is trying to keep the lid on it. He sends the USS Maine, which is a modern U.S. battleship, to Havana Harbor just to kind of calm things down and protect U.S. business interests. And things actually do calm down. The Spanish are kind of, you know, getting along with the U.S. sailors, and things seem to be good in Havana. But one night in February of 1898, the ship suddenly explodes in the middle of the night, killing all but several sailors that were on the ship. The following morning, before any information can be released that's reliable, newspapers in the U.S. run to blame the Spanish. And even some people in government, like Theodore Roosevelt, are blaming the Spanish. He wants this war, right? The U.S. would be uh, shrinking from his duty if it did not fight in this war. So the explosion of the Maine can kind of be seen as the trigger of this war, whereas some of the causes are, A, the U.S., you know, some citizens want to be an imperialist nation an empire, this is a good chance. And the other kind of cause of this, the underlying cause, is um, the fact of the yellow journalism, the U.S. public opinion getting fired up. And then your spark to ignite all this powder, guys? The USS Maine exploding. Now, official investigation be launched, and... Of course, the investigation finds that the Spanish were at fault. Today, we have no clue why the USS Maine blew up. It's likely that it had a coal-fired bunker, which was near the powder magazine, and there wasn't a lot of protection there in the powder magazine. So that's probably what happened. It was probably an accident. And if you think about it, why would the Spanish want to draw the U.S. in? They would probably lose. They were struggling against the Cubans enough. They wouldn't want the U.S. involved. So, this you know, think about the idea of who benefits from this. The Spanish certainly don't. They'll, they'll lose this war pretty quickly. And I think they knew that going in. So it was likely an accident. Probably never really know what sunk the main, but 99% sure it's probably an accident the own ship's design. But nevertheless, the newspapers run with it, and McKinley is forced to declare war on Spain. The war gets the nickname the Splendid Little War. From John Hay, Secretary of State. Here's why: because it's so short. It was basically the summer of 1898, early spring. It's a couple months. More men will die of heat stroke um, and and you know disease than Spanish bullets, and it's not close. Uh, the U.S. military is small at this time, as it will be until after World War II. It gets a ton of volunteers. That's you know, the United States originally didn't like large standing armies, so it will grow. Um, Fighting will happen in two theaters of war, the Caribbean uh, and and the Pacific near the Philippines, which was also a Spanish territory. Let's start with the Philippines, because I like to talk about this one a lot. Um, The Philippine-American War, I jumped ahead there, is very, very fascinating when it comes to early U.S. imperialism, a lot of parallels to Vietnam. So in the Philippines, um, they quickly became our ally. They wanted to the self-determine. They wanted their own government, and they're led by a guy by the name of Emil- uh, excuse me, Emilio Aguinaldo, who was really a, a brilliant guy. He's very well-educated um, in the arts of military and everything. He, he, he's significant, and he wants independence for his people. Um, Some of his writings are absolutely brilliant to read. And when you read them and you read his speeches, I often show them to students. I'm like, does this sound like an uncivilized guy? And they're like, no. So it's just interesting to look at that, even though many Americans find the Filipino people to be uncivilized, as we'll talk about. So he immediately is so excited the U.S. is joining. He calls the U.S. their redeemers. They'll help them overthrow the Spanish. Um, And we promise the Filipinos help. And um, if we help them, that they will, excuse me, if the Filipinos help us, we will give them their independence after all this is over. And Commodore George Dewey will sail his fleet there, engage the Spanish, and destroy them in one morning. Yes, Um, every Spanish ship is destroyed and sunk or too damaged. Um, The U.S. only has one casualty and uh, and Europe's in shock. The, everybody's jaw's on the floor. There were European observers there near the Philippines from Germany, France, and Britain, and they really wanted to see what the U.S. was made of, right? The U.S. was an industrial power, but not a military power by any means yet. They didn't have a proud military tradition around the world. They didn't have any territories. Um, but they leave Europe's jaw on the floor. And uh, they knew the U.S. would win, I think, Europe, but not like this. And they eventually push into the islands and defeat the Spanish uh, in about a month after that. And then, uh, and back to the Caribbean, along with the uh, along with Cuban rebels, the U.S. has you know you have the famous battle of San Juan Hill, where Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders he'll get the Medal of Honor later after his death uh, will charge the hill, defeat the Spanish, and have a couple mop up battles after, and the Spanish fleet outside Cuba is destroyed not long after. Um, before the u s before the war broke out broke out I don't want to spend too much time in the war when to get to the after effects before the war broke out the u s passed the teller amendment which said the u s had no desire to take Cuba as a colony. Cubans were relieved by this oh good good we'll get the help and they won't they won't take anything but not so fast after the war the u s changes policy with the Platt amendment which stated that the uh, that the the if the u s deems there's any threat to life liberty or property. Key John Locke, you should remember that. They have the right to intervene in Cuba. They make Cuba add this to their constitution before U.S. troops will leave, um, as well as another provision to add Guantanamo Bay as a base. But Cuba, you're still free. But they had to write into their own constitution that, hey, if anything we ever you know deem as a problem happens, we're coming back. It passes by one vote. Uh, Cubans are not happy about the Platt Amendment, and it will be remembered long after. Um, other places like Puerto Rico and Guam, which are also Spanish territories, will become U.S. territories. We'll take that territory gladly. Um, we just couldn't take Cuba officially on paper as a territory because, you know, oh, we're fighting for the Cuban independence. It would be look real bad PR. So Cuba is, so if you're keeping score at home, Cuba is, in air quotes, free, but we have quite a bit of influence there in a the military base. Puerto Rico and Guam will become territories. Let's go back to the Philippines. This is probably the biggest, in air quotes, also sin of the imperialist era. McKinley determines that Filipinos cannot govern themselves. His the advisors tell him they're too uncivilized, they're not ready for self rule, and if we don't rule them, if we don't lead them to civilization, somebody else will sweep in and take them, or the islands will descend into complete anarchy. Um, again, this comes from that idea, that root of look, they're not civilized enough to rule themselves kind of like that view of that race thing through social Darwinism lens, and the Filipinos are devastated. Um, They put their guns down only to have to pick them up again to fight the United States. Uh, Very bloody jungle fighting ensues. We kind of look like the Spanish. There's accounts of U.S. atrocities get sent back home. Now, don't get me wrong, the Filipinos can be very brutal as well. You know, war is hell, that whole idea. Um, It gets back to U.S. papers, and we almost look like the Spanish in Cuba. Um... You know, we become these empire builders, and, and we have to, have, you know, these people did not give us their consent to be governed. They wanted to determine their own fate, and we're denying them that. And if you want to be an empire, you got to break a few eggs to be an omelet. And that's kind of what some imperialists will respond to this stuff. I'm um, not taking a side here, just kind of saying, you know, what's going on. Um, the violence there will continue well into 1902 when Roosevelt eventually puts an end to the war on paper. There's still lots of violence for years to come, and, you know, we'll eventually kind of work this relationship out, and the Philippines will become independent after World War II. But still, this was kind of a loss of innocence. I really encourage you to go look at the Filipino revolt in more depth. Um, To end the imperialism, because I'm kind of over my time here, you can't figure Roosevelt's big stick policy. Uh, Many Caribbean countries and Latin American countries owe debts to Europe, and Roosevelt adds what's called the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine said no European powers can get involved in our hemisphere. Um, Roosevelt will add to that and say, Hey, not only can you not get involved, if there's a problem over here, we'll use our Navy, the great white fleet, which I've created, which Roosevelt sent on a world tour to show off. Um, I'll use my Navy to collect the debt, and we'll send it back to Europe, and this is our hemisphere, and you stay out, but we can intervene and be the policemen of our half of the world. Again, that empire building starting up. Uh, U.S. troops will occupy many, many Latin American countries throughout the 20th century to get debt collection. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was very known for sending troops to the Caribbean. Uh, Mexico, I believe Veracruz was during his presidency as well. Um, Roosevelt also built the Navy, modernized that. That's kind of an imperialist thing. And we can't forget the Panama Canal. (laughs) Um, Roosevelt wanted to build the Panama Canal badly. It would connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, making trade much shorter there. And he hoped to to do this uh, would put a big feather in the cap of the United States and his own presidency. Um, Problem is, Panama was not a country. It belonged to Colombia. And the Colombians were like, no, you're not digging a huge, you know, ditch through our country we're not leasing you the canal zone um they had done this with the french but the french had failed in their quest to build the canal and the colombians kind of you're like no it's going to cost you this much more if you want to even think about doing it and roosevelt's incensed and kind of reached out to the panamanians and says hey you want to be a country and the panamanians are like great that sounds awesome you're gonna help us they're like yep gotta let us dig a canal though and the panamanians say uh, okay and so a couple u.s gunboats arrive um it's a pretty bloodless revolution in the Panama becomes separate, and the canal is constructed. The construction of the canal itself was very dangerous and very difficult. Many men died in the construction of it, but fascinating time period nonetheless. So, if you're kind of keeping score at home for territories the U.S. picks up in this time or places it's involved, it's a lot. Um, we we talk about Spanish-American War, Hawaii, Alaska, um, post-Spanish-American War territories will be Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines. Uh, I can't forget Cuba in air quotes, right? Cuba's free, but we have a lot of sway there. And then the Panama Canal. Uh, it's, it's a quick, quick, you know, acceleration. But I will tell you this. If you look at Americans' attitudes after the Philippine situation, America kind of looked around the corner of being an empire and sort of shied away after that. For countries like Britain and France during the time period, you know, breaking a few eggs to make an empire omelet wasn't a problem. If you had to, you know, subject some people to some awful things... It's kind of what empires did, and they had a history of that. The United States was different. We had the Constitution, self-determination, consent of the governed, the Declaration of Independence, all this ancient lore that we were supposed to be better than the other empires of the world that we kind of had to overcome. And when we sort of became an empire ourselves for a time there, a lot of Americans were like, oh, if I knew it was going to cost this much, maybe we would have reconsidered. So a very fascinating time period of the Imperial Age. Um you know, and it will lead us into World War One, and we'll kind of want to stay out of both World Wars because of this episode with the Philippines and the whole imperialism episode in general. Sorry, I'm a little over on time. Had to give my Get Up Tuesday announcement there. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening. Next episode will be on World War One and women's suffrage. I'm hoping I can keep that one a little bit shorter, but knowing me and my love of the the First World War, um, it's probably going to be a little bit long. And I do enjoy talking about the women's suffrage movement and some of the the individuals involved with it. So, going to try to keep that one a bit shorter, but We'll see. Thank you so much for listening today.